Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of Music Talks, the show where we ask a guest to choose a song from each decade of their life and tell us why those songs in particular are so important to them. Today's guest is another introduction from Roy Sharples, who was my guest on episode 61, so thank you, Roy. This one, in terms of arrangements, all problems caused by me, has been a bit challenging, so even more than ever, it's a a delight to say, and I've been given permission by my guest to use the English version of his name, but it's a, a great delight to say, George Gabriel, welcome to Music Talks. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me here. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Now, give me the proper pronunciation of your name, please. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> okay, it's Georgos Gabriel. I'm glad you uh, allowed me to go with uh, George Gabriel. As I told you, I've made a mess of other people's names that are um, far less challenging. Anyway, it's a delight to have you here. I know you've been good enough to listen to a number of the episodes, so you know the format. So would you kick us off in uh, the time on a fashion with a quick pen portrait of who George is, please? Yes, of course. So, Terry, I was born in 1975 in Athens, and I lived for many years in Piraeus. Piraeus is like the port of Athens. The two cities are practically, you know, joined at the hip. And Piraeus, just to make it easier for your listeners, is like the departure point for all the boats with travelers to the Greek islands. So this must mean a lot to people who visit Greece during the summer. I'm married. I have two kids, aged uh, five and nine. And I would say that uh, in general, I'm a late bloomer in terms of my relationship with music, in the sense that until the age of 18, I was completely indifferent to it, even negative, I would say. But then something clicked and I started listening to music compulsively and I started collecting music and actually building a kind of encyclopedic knowledge for bands, discographies, records and stuff like that. And I really like the stories, you know, behind an album, how it was created, how bands came together and all that stuff. And nowadays I would say that I have quite a big collection of records and CDs and still keep growing it at the fast pace. I would also say that I have like an addictive personality in the sense that uh, when I decide to invest in something, I do it quite obsessively. (laughs) You can trace some kind of contradictions in my character and way of life. For example, I was born and lived by the sea for many years and I really love the sea, but nowadays I live in the mountains and I work in the digital experience space, like running and developing projects of digital transformation and the likes. But on the other hand, I'm really obsessed and opposed to many ways on how Spotify and what it does to music nowadays, you know. And although I collect a lot of vinyl, I also truly believe that CDs are an underappreciated medium for hearing music and that the music industry actually could have served it better as a medium by offering a better packaging and a better experience as a whole. You know, I know that this is a contradictory view, so I wanted to put it out there in the beginning to get it out of my system, you know. That's brilliant. I mean, just a couple of observations. One is, I think if I had a pound for every guest who at some point had used the word addictive or obsessive, then I'd be a rich man. So yeah, it tends to be a theme that runs through as as music lovers. And in terms of your comments about CD, I think I share that in the sense that, uh, you know, before we pressed record, we were looking at some stuff, but I do have over 3000 CDs in my studio. And unlike a lot of people, I have no plans to get rid of them. You know, one of the things that got me back into vinyl was the excitement 
of the package turning up and then unpacking it and then the physical side of it and being able to read lyrics that you could read rather than them to get a magnifying glass. So <laughs> given that my 15th anniversary present to my wife and she had mentioned she wanted one was a Walkman because I do still have a cassette deck recorder. <laughs> The CD revival has got to be on its way, George. <laughs> I also believe that. And I think, you know, that the music industry actually got very greedy at the time of this CD because they saw it as an opportunity to cut down costs and everything and actually increase the prices. Well, they could have created the medium that was more longstanding, but they didn't do that and they paid for that. We know this already. So um, it's interesting you mentioned Piraeus because you were born in 75. So in 1978, I was in Perez getting a ferry out to the Greek islands for my student summer holiday. So talk to me about growing up. What was it like? My neighborhood is like, was a really traditional neighborhood exactly near the sea. There were no cars around. There were streets where we got out and played all the time. It was a brilliant time for me and I really enjoyed it. The place is like a small harbor where fishermen were around. It still are a few of them nowadays, but a lot has changed in the area right now. And that was one of the reasons why I got out of it. So my childhood was very nice, was very relaxed in those terms. I had friends in the neighborhood. My parents were not very much that into music. Maybe that was the reason why I grew up so late to music. They never had, I think, more than 10 records in their life. But I had a cousin near me who was older than me. And at some point she started collecting records. And when I said in the beginning that I was uh, negative towards music, in the beginning, I couldn't understand why she was doing that, <laughs> spending her money that way. But later she actually taught me and helped me grow into music or destroyed me. Actually, I don't know what is the best uh, characterization. <laughs> and I also remember, I don't know whether you had this in the UK, but there were like a pirate shop quite near my house where you could uh, make a list of songs that you wanted and he had all the records and he created a mixtape for you and you paid for that. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. Wow. That was a great <laughs> service, you know, like any song that you wanted, you put it in a list and two days later it came in a, in a formal pirate mixtape, but professionally recorded. My goodness. So... Tell me about your choice for the 70s. I mean, obviously, born in 75, it's a retrospective one, but it's certainly a long way from that idyllic childhood you just portrayed. So talk us through that choice, please. Okay. First of all, I have to say that it was really hard for me to not include, you know, a song from Bowie or The Class and the likes, because it was a really formative uh, decade in music from artists like this. But in the end, I decided to go with a James Brown song as an honor to my latest obsession with fun music. And uh, this obsession, you know, came together while trying to seriously learn guitars during the last uh, two, three years. Let me make a small detour here to describe a relationship with learning guitar because it was always a troubled one until quite recently. You know, my first attempt took place in my early 20s when I picked up an acoustic guitar and started to learn myself to sing songs and strum along, you know. But at some point I tried to take formal guitar lessons, but I was not able to find a good teacher at that point. I mean, in Athens, you know, in the pre-internet age, music schools only taught classical guitar. And I wanted something more song-driven, you know, rock-driven. I ended up taking lessons from a great teacher, 
but one who was actually had nothing to do with that kind of music, but he was in, on the informal kind of teachers, you know. He actually taught Greek traditional music, uh, mainly played with Busuki, a genre that is called uh, Rebetica. Do you know what Rebetica is? No. Actually, it's a great genre and it has many common cultural elements with the blues in the sense that it comes from similar lower class people. It has similar song topics like simple structures and very helpful and plain lyrics full of emotion. It's that kind of music. But anyway, this teacher really hated anything that had to do with rock music, funk and all these genres that I liked. And after a few months, I gave up. I couldn't keep up with him. You know, he said, what do you want to play? I said, door, uh, they cannot come to save their life. It was that kind of negativity, you know. <laughs> I understood. And until two or three years ago, when I realized that the landscape for learning music has completely changed, due to the internet and that there are great online courses for any type of music that you can imagine. So I again started taking lessons, you know, remotely through online courses on my own. And I do it very consistently. And I have made a habit of waking up early in the morning and I have at least one hour of practice every day. Wow. Anyway, so during these last years, I came to really appreciate funk because, you know, although it seems like a very simple kind of music, it is actually really hard to play it right because it needs stamina. It has complex rhythms. And imagine that my teachers told me that you need a lot of months to be able to play proper funk. Even after that, when I have a concert and I have not played for two weeks, then I cannot deliver. You need to be constantly in shape to be able to do this. So this is why I chose this song. And I like the groove here that, you know, lasts for more than 10 minutes. And uh, I believe that James Brown is really underappreciated as far as funk is concerned. And in the beginning of the 70s, he did many great records. And this song is from that period of his. Let's take a listen and then I want to talk more about your guitar playing. But uh, here is only 90 seconds of what I think, as you say, is a 12 minute track. So here we go. Yeah. What it is and what it is, what it is, what it is, I'm sure you know that was actually 
supposed to be the soundtrack for a black exploitation film called Hell Up in Harlem. But it was rejected by the film's producers who dismissed it as, and I quote, the same old James Brown stuff. Brilliant minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And there is a widely repeated story, which in, James Brown himself used to tell this, that the director, Larry Cohen, rejected the music, and you're going to love this, George, is not funky enough. <laughs> As we all know that people can rewrite history, so apparently Cohen, there's a DVD documentary, says that he didn't say that, and that wasn't his view, and that the absence of Brand's music from the film still breaks his heart, but no smoke without fire, I suspect. And of course, it's now seen as a real classic. And uh, yeah, that track, well, the whole album is just brilliant. Just going back to your guitar playing then, how competent then would you describe yourself now? I mean, if you're practicing an hour a day over a couple of years, I'm assuming. Yeah, I would say that I still have too many things to learn. I'm very hard on myself. I can play songs. When you actually deep dive into this thing, you understand how much sophistication there is in there. So I'm very humble on this. And I would say that, uh, unfortunately, I kick myself in the head for not starting earlier because I don't think I will be able to learn everything that I want to learn. You know, it's, it's such a big journey, so colorful, so many different kinds of music around the world. And it's a good opportunity to also learn stuff about music, like how a rhythm started in New Orleans and then mutated to something else. Actually, I have started even having lessons in music theory, which in the beginning I was considered to be anathema, you know, but now I consider it to be vital to be able to play properly at some point. And my ultimate goal is actually to be able to improvise, to get lost in music. It can be a very structured process in some way, in the sense it can be practice. And there is a, a school of teaching that says that you should start improvising even if you can only play two notes because it will be really helpful. It's a skill that you need to develop along all, all other skills in music. I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, here's the follow-on question, which is, do you play in public then? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Understood. So look, I'm going to push you on into the 80s. Another fascinating choice and an artist I love. So uh, take us through that, George. That artist is uh, Tom Waits. Tom Waits actually, for me, is one of my top artists, period. I like him so very much. His theatricality, his sense of melody, his lyrics, his retro style, his unconventional uses of sound. And for me, actually, it was a wild card in the sense that I could use any song of his in any decade because I think he had a consistent career and has been producing great records for many, many years. And I like this a lot about him. And I also like the fact that he completely changed his lifestyle and his music when he met his wife in the early 80s, you know. And they have been working together ever since. And this is a great story, actually. So this song is from that period of his. It is included in the record Rain Dogs, the cover of which actually includes a photograph from one of my favorite photographers, which is called Anders Peterson. Photography is another important hobby for me that I forgot to mention. Do you know him? No, I don't, but I'm very impressed that you know that it's not a picture of Tom Waits, because most people think it is. No, no, I have actually the photo book where this photograph is included, you know. And uh, this song is supposed to be narrated by a person that is totally wasted at the moment from alcohol and from living a wild life, you know. And I read somewhere that this is the reason why the melody in the intro is so dissonant and 
does not make much sense harmony-wise because it's supposed to be played by that person while being high, you know? Brilliant. Oh, and another small story about Tom Waits and how he uses unconventional sounds in his recordings. In one of his latest uh, records, there is a very tender love song ballad, uh, which is called Kiss Me. Do you know this? I do, I do. Do you remember that it has a hissing sound like a scratched LP record? Yes. In an interview, Tom Waits has mentioned that this is actually the result of having a hand microphone and recording the sound of a chicken being barbecued at home (laughs) on a Sunday (laughs) or something. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Of course, we know that this is maybe totally bullshit because Tom Waits actually is a very well-known bullshitter in all these things. Yeah, but the thing with Tom Waits is it might also be absolutely true. Yeah. That's the thing. You never know. You never know. Let's take a listen to the track, which is uh, Tango Till the Saw, and then uh, I want to continue that conversation about uh, sounds and recording and uh, dissonance, because there's a couple of other good stories. Here it is. I was lucky enough to see him in the 70s, uh, I think it was 77, at the London Palladium. He did The Piano's Been Drinking, It's Not Me. I always remember playing that to a friend who was a really good pianist who just looked and said, do you realise how hard that is? (laughs) (laughs) That album, if you look on the wiki, and of course it was in the 80s, and it sounds nothing like an 80s album, thank goodness. But what Tom Waits says was, if I want a sound, I usually feel better if I've chased it and killed it, skinned it and cooked it. Most things you get, you can get with a button nowadays. So if I was trying a certain drum sound, my engineer would say, oh, for Christ's sake, why are we wasting time? Let's just hit this little button, sample something, make it bigger in the mix, don't worry about. And Tom says, I'd respond, No, I would rather go in the bathroom and hit the door with a piece of two-by-four very hard. (laughs) And apparently did at one point. (laughs) Was it that 80s period that you first got into him? Because the reason I asked the question is that I was, like, closing time and heart of Saturday night. So basically, his asylum years, I loved everything that he did. 
So I was one of those people that in the 80s when it all changed, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I like this now. Clearly, I've come round, but at the time, Tom's gone a bit off the rails. So was it that period that got you into him? Yes, of course, not when it was actually came, because I would be 10 years old. And I think if I if my kid starts listening to Tom Waits at 10, I would take him to a psychiatrist or something. <laughs> He'd probably need it. Yeah, but it was this period that I first fell in love with him, you know. But I also like the early stuff a lot, you know, like uh, Small Changes, a great, great record. Or Invitation to the Blues, I love that song. Blue Valentines is a great oh, record. Oh, fantastic. Into the 90s, so you're well into your teenage years. So tell us what was going on for you and uh, then take us through your choice. Okay, this is the decade where I really started to listen to music, you know, actively. And uh, it was the years that I pretty much was finishing school. And uh, in Greece, you know, they have a very strange system of going to the universities where you actually have to pick before what kind of universities you want to go to. And then you sit for an exam and for only four courses and how you go in these four courses determines which university you will go into. It's a very difficult and stressful experience. And I managed to do well in that. But it was really stressful for me. And the thing is, I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. So I ended up in a university for computers, engineering and stuff like that. I didn't like that very much as a profession. So I spent most of the university years hanging around, partying, stuff like that, you know. So I would say that it was a really great decade for me altogether. <laughs> Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Another thing that happens in that period in Greece is that you have to go to the army and you cannot skip, you know, it's like obligatory for everybody. Imagine that this is not like a couple of months, it's two years of your time. But also this is a great period. I make great friends, uh, you know, actually this period during the university and then the after graduate studies and the army were the best years for having fun and for me to experiment with much stuff. We used to have it in the UK called National Service. So you look back on that National Service positively? Yes. To be honest, I had someone who helped me get a, a good position, you know, where I didn't do much and I never held a gun, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I was in an office and I was pushing paper until 12 o'clock in the afternoon and then I went to the beach. That was the kind of army that I went. That sounds like my sort of National Service, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Other people have it uh, very hard, you know, so I'm really grateful for that period. I assume that stopped now, but when did it stop? Oh, it hasn't stopped yet. It's just that the duration is a little bit smaller. I think it's a little bit above one year or something. Oh, wow, it's still going on? Yeah, you know, Greece is a small country and theoretically it needs to be protected from many outsiders. So it doesn't have the budget to have all missionary armies and so this is still the case. If everybody has it as enjoyable as you, I can see why it's continued. So take us through your choice then, George. As I said, this is uh, the decade that I started to listen to music. That's why it was very difficult for me to pick a song. And I had many things to consider. It was a very difficult decision. There were a couple of great radio stations in Athens at the time. And all these songs in the air at the moment, you know, seeped into my subconscious. And actually nowadays, many years in the future since then, I have been actually returning to these songs more. You know how nostalgia works. 
I have even come to like songs that really pissed me off at the time, you know. <laughs> Can you think of any examples of songs that pissed you off that you now like? Many actually, but I remember, for example, Smash Mouth. I hated them. But recently when their singer died, there was a song and I remembered many great times dancing to that song, although I didn't like it. So I actively searched for that to hear it on YouTube, you know. That's good. That to me is part of the genius of music. Its ability to time transport you back. Yeah, great, great example. So um, you finally came down to Jeff Buckley. Interested why this particular song? First of all, this is the only record that Jeff Buckley ever recorded. And, um, you know, he drowned in the Mississippi prior to recording his second album. And this is the record that I have heard, I think, the most in my life. And uh, I picked it up as a leap of faith while browsing, you know, at LP covers in a record store. And that cover, uh, which is old fashioned, really triggered my imagination. And I wasn't disappointed. This song especially stuck out very early while hearing this record. And uh, I listened to it obsessively. I really like how he treats it uh, vocally wise. And the crescendo that there is in this song, the melodramatic lyrics at some point, you know. As I said, I'm an obsessive character, so I again grew obsessive with Jeff Buckley in general. And I managed at that period in, you know, in the pre-internet era to find a lady somewhere in Norway, I think, which provided me with multiple bootlegs of his wow. in Bern CD-ROMs and sent them over to Greece. Oh, fantastic. And I remember spending endless hours comparing different versions of each song and trying to find the best alternatives and make mixtapes and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't know whether you know that Jeff Buckley is actually very big in doing many covers during his concerts especially his solo ones, because he used to play only himself with an electric guitar from Nina Simone, Smiths, uh, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, many more. So it was actually great to dig around in all these bootlegs and find different songs. And do you still have them all? Yeah, I still have them all. But the problem is that many of these things have been officially released later <laughs> on, so they have lost their uh, monetary value. They have been greatly depreciated by his mother, <laughs> I think, who has exploited his career to a great extent. Let's have a listen to just a part, obviously, of uh, Lover, You Should Have Come Over. Too young to hold on too old to just break free and run Sometimes a man gets carried away He feels like he should be having his fun But much too blind to see the damn 
So I have to thank you for that choice because when your list came through, I looked and thought, I haven't listened to Grace for ages and um, it just blew me away again. And I know it's true of anyone who dies so young, but um, you have to wonder what he would have done because a massive, massive talent. Lyrics or music, which way do you lean in terms of a preference? You know, I think that lyrics are really important to connect with the song. But the magic of music is that it can disguise even the most bullshit lyrics into <laughs> something meaningful. We've got halfway through without mentioning Springsteen, but you have to remember that this is the man who did decide to leave off some fantastic songs for the immortal Ooh, Ooh, I've Got a Crush on You. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I have to do the radio link that says, uh, move you into the North and from one genius to another. And this choice pleased me even more. But um, talk us through it, George. This choice is by Leonard Cohen. I believe that Leonard is really great, you know. His 80s records production has not aged very well as most things that are 80s related, you know. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Until, you know, it gets back in fashion, that style, that kind of sound, and we're all screwed again. <laughs> but anyway, I think that he writes great songs and his lyrics are either very stark and precise, for example, you know, famous Blue Rain Code, or they're very poetic and abstract, like my pick today. And I especially like lyrics like this, because uh, if you try to describe them and analyze them, you lose something in the process. And although they are very cryptic, you can actually feel their truth in your core in some way. For example, you live your life as if it's real, a thousand kisses deep. I remember hearing this song in a film by Neil Jordan, which is called The Good Thief, and starring Nick Nolte. Have you seen this film? I haven't. I didn't know about that. That's a great tip. Thank you. It really hit home when I heard it in that context. And I don't remember the specifics of the scene or many details about the film plot, but I remember thinking that, yep, this is the perfect song for this scene over here. And it connected many dots for the song as well for me until that point that I had not made uh, such uh, thoughts or some uh, such uh, you know, connections. And I managed to see Leonard Cohen in a course in Greece during one of his last tours in his life. And maybe you know that he was cheated by his manager and he was broke very late in his life. Did you know that? I did, yes. He, uh, his manager took $5 million from him. <laughs> change. And that's why actually he went on tour. But instead of doing a, a scaled-down tour, he went on the road with a big band with great musicians and he played some great renditions of his early songs in a more jazzy setup. And this was the kind of concert that I saw him during that period. And I think in this new interpretation actually made up for the 80s uh, scenes, you know, <laughs> that I mentioned before. But I imagine that such a tour is really costly and given the size of the personnel. But he did it properly despite his age and his financial situation at the moment. I think that it, this is very noble of him. I think he played for more than three hours despite being late 70s, early 80s in his career. And I also have a funny story about Leonard Cohen to share. You know, my wife has a lady friend who had a boyfriend at that time. And obviously, that guy had heard me at some point talking favorably about Leonard, how he, I like his music. But, you know, this is me. I do it with too many musicians, but he must have assumed that I was the hugest fan in the world. I am, and I'm mean, but, uh, you know, I like many, many artists that way. So what happened is that uh, one time they came to visit home. And they brought me a gift that it was a wood plate. 
and it had uh, Leonard Cohen portrait on it at his old age. It was like etched on the wood and it seemed like something very custom, you know. I searched on the internet to find its origins, uh, where you can buy such a thing, and I could not find anything you know, like that. Because it, it is so custom, it looks like the portrait of your grandfather or something, you know. <laughs> I still have uh, at home more Grandpa Leonard on a shelf in my office space, you know. He looks after me, you know. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Let's take a listen to A Thousand Kisses Deep. The ponies run, the girls are young, the odds are there to be. You win a while, and then it's done, your little winning streak. If I had to choose my favorite Cohen album, it would be this one. There is just something about yeah. it that I love. You know, it's timeless, I think. It's great. It sounds like it should also have been called the Garage Album because Sharon Robinson, who became his sort of muse and mentor, the lady singing on the song. So the album was actually recorded in her studio, which was her home garage that had been converted. And then she took the raw audio to Leonard's studio, which was above his garage. <laughs> so maybe there's something in there because it's just the sound on it is so intimate. It's so serene. So if anybody hasn't checked out 10 new songs, then you should, because uh, I think it's uh, another work of genius, but great to revisit them all. I'm now then going to push you into the 2010s and a band to make you envious I was lucky enough to see last night, but take us through that choice. Yeah, that choice is the national. This is the age in my life where I got married, I start having kids, you know, and national is a band that I grew up with because practically we're in the same age group as they are. I started listening to them early on in their career when I was like them, like a single man in a big city. And then we evolved together, having family and kids, living the ups and downs in life and so on. And I think this is reflected in the band's lyrics and how they have evolved over time. For me, this is very precious. In particular, I got into National since the record Alligator, which had a very distinctive male narrator 
voice, which was really self-deprecating, sarcastic at times, a little bit horny also, you know. <laughs> I had seen them in a concert at the time, as I said, and I was very surprised by how much energy they had. But the song I picked is from later on in their career, and it revolves around a married couple with kids, and they're having problems in their marriage. And hence the title that refers to the fact that this couple, you know, is having the same discussion over and over again for the 16th time, but they're getting nowhere. And it's again narrated from the male perspective, and it expresses, you know, his guilt for not being as good as he could be. And you see how the themes have evolved over the years, you know, in their music. And I think that the melody in the verse is also really gorgeous. Let's take a listen. It's a Hollywood summer. You never believe the shitty thoughts I think. We are friends out for dinner. When I said what I said, I didn't mean anything. We belong in a movie. Try to hold it together till our friends are gone We should swim in a fountain Do not want to disappoint anyone Now we'll leave the silver cities All the silver girls gave us black dreams Leave the silver city to all the silver girls Everything means everything fantastic band and i can't wait to see what they do next have you listened to the new album that came out last week yeah i liked it a lot actually national is a band that i relate a lot with my wife she liked a lot the final song i don't remember the title right now and she sent through uh, whatsapp and she said listen to this i like this because it reminds me of the old national song because it's a little bit more edgy i liked the record and i liked even the previous one a lot they have got some mixed reviews, and I don't understand them. I think that they're both great records, those two. Two albums of that quality in a year, I think, is great work. So long may it continue. George, I can't believe it. We're in the current decade. Your final choice is another genuinely interesting one, a band, again, I'm well aware of and like. So talk us through it, please. First of all, I think that Ireland has produced some great uh, post-punk uh, bands in the last few years. And uh, Fontaine DC is my most favorite of them all. The accent is a little bit heavy to digest in the beginning, at least for me. I think that I consider them to be the best rock band at the moment right now. They are very dark, they are poetic, they have a space, an atmosphere in the music. And I think this is something that I always appreciate. And I think this record of theirs, the second one, A Hero's Death, was really great and my favorite of all. And I think I would have picked almost any song out of it. But that being said, I realized that when I was picking up my song for this list, that I have not been that intimate with this record as much as I would have liked to. And I think this has to do, we have changed listening to music nowadays. You know, 
how we changed context in music very easily with Spotify, Apple Music, so on. And we don't give, at least me, I don't have the time to give any record the proper time to sing it properly as we did in the past. If you notice the list that I sent you, I realized that it doesn't have many records from the last few years. Maybe it is that it's too early to appreciate them that much, but maybe this also has to do something with that, you know. And because we're always like distracted with something new that comes out and all the rhythm of information is so continuous and you end up more emotionally touched with the records that you hear. We're trying to change how I listen to music during the last couple of years and by self-imposing even limitations to me. Like, you know, I put a CD in constant rotation while driving in the one car that still had a CD player. And this seems to work better because when I get back the next time in that car, I still find the music that I heard the last time and, I, and it keeps rotating. This is how you build that intimacy. So I think that the reality is really problematic and I try to change that in with tricks like that. We've got all of the music in the world at our fingertips, but I'm not sure we're listening the way we used to, if that makes sense. Mm, exactly like that. Very well put. I agree. I wish you well with that. So um, tell us what your choice is then. It's from Content DC. And actually, I don't remember which song I picked from the record, to be honest with you. You picked, and I think it's a lovely way to finish, Love is the Main Thing. Yes, yes, exactly. It's a great song. Very optimistic, uh, you know, message. Although I think it has also a bit of irony. I can never tell <laughs> without the lyrics because he's never uh, that straightforward, you know. And uh, actually, he quite recently released uh, a solo LP. Have you heard this? No, I haven't. What's it like? Completely different from their sound. It's very acoustic, very low profile. Uh, my wife loves it. This record of his got him into the band as a whole. It was the entry point for her, so she really liked it. But anyway, I like all three of the records. This one, I think, is really special. And I have chased the color version of their vinyls as well. You know, the blue one for this one, because the cover is also blue. Colored vinyl is a thing of beauty. Here's uh, Love is the Main Thing from Fontaine's DC.
yeah, they're certainly one of the more interesting bands around. So uh, thank you, and you can't resist that Irish accent. So that brings us to the point where I would normally say final thoughts, but I have one for you because I mentioned that you sent me through a list of favourite influential albums. I put it in a spreadsheet and it came out at 101, which I thought was magic. What I wanted to do was just, I'm going to pick out five that popped for me. And it also means that if I mention them, then they get to go on the playlist. There's classics on here. There's also quite a lot of stuff that I've never heard. So if I look at the G's, uh, Gallon, Drunk from the Heart of Town, Gene, Olympian, Giant Sand is all over the map songs. None of those are even on my radar. The ones that I love are, you chose Eels, Beautiful Freak. And I've loved Eels from right back to Beautiful Freak and Overcame for the Soul. So brilliant. One you don't see on many lists, Guillemots, Through the Windowpane. If anyone hasn't listened to the Guillemots, if you like your pretentious over-the-top and, you know, arrangements where they throw in the kitchen sink and a bit more, it's the album for you. I think it's brilliant. The guy behind the band was called Fife Dangerfield, who apparently is still making music, but really has disappeared in the last 10 years. It is on my favourite album list. The other one that was joy was Richmond Fontaine, Post Wire. The guy behind that band is Willie Vlorton, who's also now a successful author, and his first book, Motel Life, was made into a film. It's grim and challenging, but brilliant. I always say this, the reason I love doing this podcast, have you heard the Deleens, George? Yes, I also like them a lot. It's basically Richmond Fontaine with a female vocalist, but what I didn't realise until researching this episode is Amy Boone, who is the female singer, it was her sister who sang the female parts on Poster Wire. Oh, really? I didn't know that. To be honest, Richmond Fontaine with the better vocals because his Blotin's uh, uh, vocals are not that great. Let's be honest. On that. Yeah, absolutely. But he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant songwriter. The next one I was delighted by, Josh Rouse, 1974. I love the man. I think he's massively underrated. And 1974 is a great album, but I actually don't think he's made a bad album other than he did do a Spanish language album that was a bit questionable, but he's great. And then the final one is Richard Hawley, Cole's Corner. Do you know the story behind Cole's Corner? I think this is a place in his town and where uh, lovers couples go, if I remember correctly. So that Correct. And the cover you mentioned before about cover, I just love the cover to Cole's Corner. But that's the clue because at one point it was a cinema. But basically it, on a Saturday night, if you were meeting somebody, you know, are we going out on a date? That's where you would stand hoping that they would turn up. There is now a official plaque on the spot commemorating that. And the great thing is that in the same premises, there's now a record shop and cafe. And guess what? They've called it Cole's Corner. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I love Richard Hawley. That's a brilliant album. So a fantastic list. If anybody would like to see that list, all my 200 plus albums, then do send me an email at musictalkspod at uh, outlook.com. George, thank you for a fascinating discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Terry. My pleasure. And I always find it interesting to look at people's choices and very often there is some sort of line or theme going through. And I think if you look at yours, there is an emotion to the music that I think is noticeable and it's not easy listening, is it? And I mean that as a compliment. So a great set of choices. Final thoughts from you, sir? 
I just thought this uh, was keeping it a secret, but I think in the 20s, I gave myself up in the sense that if you asked me to do this list again, I'm sure that I would choose completely different ones, you know, because it's just so hard to pick uh, only five songs out of all these decades and you have to negotiate with yourself and you, it's not easy. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you to everyone listening. And we will see you in a month's time on the first Thursday of November. 